hello. It's Wednesday, March the 9th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, can dogs be depressed? Well, apparently they can. Stay tuned and we'll tell you all about it. Energy bills, they're shooting up. Petrol could reach £2 a litre. But first, could Putin's generals overthrow him as the war in Ukraine continues to stutter for the Russians? So it's two weeks now since the invasion of Ukraine began and Russia has, frankly, not accomplished any of its major goals. Could Vladimir Putin's military chiefs now actually start wondering whether the only way to get themselves out of this mess and their men is to get rid of the man who created it? Mark Galetti is Honorary Professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies and he's also the author of We Need to Talk About Putin. He's written a powerful piece arguing how Putin's generals could turn against him. He joins me now. Professor, how soon do you think that could happen, potentially at least? At the moment, it still seems like quite an outside chance because there's still a massive, complex security apparatus in place precisely to keep the generals in check. But on the other hand, look, things are going really rather badly for the Russians in Ukraine, as you said, and things can change on the ground really quite quickly. I think at the moment, the generals will be hoping either that they have some kind of battlefield success or more likely that Putin decides to scale down his ambitions and reach some kind of a deal with the Ukrainians. In other words, they're hoping not to have to take a tough decision. But if neither of those happen, if they still get stuck there, then that's when all the easy answers go away and they're really going to have to face this choice. And one of the problems, of course, is you make, you make the point, um, 40% of Russian soldiers are conscripts. Many of them have had little training and there are all sorts of reports we're hearing about mothers complaining that their sons had no notion that they were going to fight in Ukraine. They thought they were on an extended training exercise and um, are deeply unhappy having to take up arms against people who uh, often live just... 20-odd miles away from the Russian border. Yeah, and what's more, by Russian law, conscripts can't be sent abroad except in times of war. Remember, this is not officially a war. It's not an invasion. It's a special military operation, and you can get put in prison in Russia for for claiming anything else. Well, what that meant is that a lot of conscripts basically had to be lent on to force them to sign agreements saying, yes, I volunteer, which again is, is not exactly going to go down well. And on this, the Ukrainians have played a blinder. When they capture Russian prisoners, they allow them to ring their parents back home. Yeah. And often for their parents, this is the first time they had any idea that their boy was out there in a war zone. So I think what's interesting is just how far we're going to see dismay begin to spread within Russia. Firstly, as people begin to realize what's happening to their soldiers. But secondly, when some of those soldiers start coming home or not coming home, as the case may be. And of course, we, history reminds us that in Afghanistan, one of the decisive turning points uh, for the Soviets was the response of the soldiers' mothers uh, at the number of body bags that were coming back. If that starts to happen again, I appreciate, Professor, we've read that uh, Putin's army is equipped with mobile crematorium units, but body bags will be going back and we think thousands have already died. Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, you can burn a corpse, but you can't burn a memory. 
So they're going to have there going to be some very difficult questions to answer if, if if boys start not coming back and there's no explanation. But I think what's particularly striking is you mentioned the parallel with the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. Even if we take the relatively low end of the casualty figures that we're hearing, basically what the Russians have lost in two weeks is equivalent to how many casualties they took in three years of the war in Afghanistan. I mean, this is a really major engagement. And precisely, bit by bit, the news is trickling back to, to Russia. And organizations like the Council of Soldiers' Mothers, which has a lot of legitimacy. It's very hard for yeah. the state to crack down on mothers who are just simply saying, where's my yeah. boy? Well, these are exactly the kind of people who are going to be at the forefront. And the day when we start seeing riot police have to decide if they're going to beat up a collection of mothers and grandmothers, again, that's when a whole bunch of other hard questions are going to have to be asked. And, of course, the Kremlin can still control the mass media, but social media, they can't control that. They've tried to get Facebook taken down and all the rest of it, but people will have access to social media and they will be learning some uncomfortable truths about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, look, we've already seen thousands of brave Russians being arrested for protesting against the war. And again, it takes a lot to go out there and protest when you know that that means almost certainly you're going to be arrested and an arrest could mean prison. It could just mean a good solid beating in, in, in the back of the uh, detention van. So, you know, this is already quite a constituency out there. But the point is, you say that the, the state controls the official media. and You're absolutely right. But the point is, Russians are used to being lied to. They've been lied to not just for years or decades, but arguably centuries. And they got pretty good at reading between the lines. And if I think of my conversations with, with Russians, you know, obviously I've got friends uh, in, in Moscow and elsewhere. And, you know, even the ones that are kind of broadly in favor of Putin and such like, all, already they are clear that there's, there's two different universes. There's the universe of Kremlin propaganda and the universe that everyone else lives in. So, yes, I think already we're beginning to see the cracks in the propaganda machine. And if I could ask you just finally, because you refer to it in your piece, there was the report supposedly by an FSB analyst that was leaked at the weekend describing the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a total failure, concluding Russia has no way out. Do you think that report was genuine? Honestly, I don't know, because we are also in the middle of an information war. And this would also fit in terms of a sort of gambit to try and spread suspicion and dismay within the security apparatus. But I think the reason why it would be powerful is because whether it's genuine or not, it does speak to a very genuine sense of unease already we're getting within the Russian security establishment. Also, again, equally dangerous, the fact that I think everyone is already beginning to manoeuvre to try and make their case as to why it's not their fault. Why all this disaster isn't going on, everyone's going to start pointing the fingers at, at everyone else. So, yes, at the moment, I imagine there's a lot of people in Moscow and elsewhere within the system, people with a lot to lose, who are actually thinking this is a disaster. This is going to cost us and our country incredibly heavily. What can we do about it? Indeed. That's Mark Galetti, honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. He's also the author of We Need to Talk About Putin. And I suspect we'll be talking about Putin for a very long time. Thanks for joining us. Want to get in touch? Tweet us at Malplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has pledged to phase Russian oil out of Britain by the end of the year in a move to mount pressure on Vladimir Putin. But it could mean motorists paying a very high price. Petrol prices are now threatening to hit 
£1,000 a litre. Fairfuel UK is now calling for fuel duty to be cut to slow the current hugely damaging inflationary pressures. Howard Cox joins me now and he's the founder of Fairfuel UK. Um, Mr Cox, we've got a, a statement by the Chancellor in a couple of weeks' time in March. He could easily turn it into an emergency budget and in that emergency budget he could do something about fuel duty. You're absolutely right, Andrew. I mean, people are hurting now. We're Our supporters are contacting me now. We're hearing £1.96 already in the West Country at the pumps. This is crippling the economy and he's got to do something about it now and he can do something now because he's enjoying a huge amount of VAT revenue, something in the region of two to three billion pounds extra, more than he ever expected, all because of these, this lucky fluky rise in oil prices. Uh, 196, is this, is this the highest for 13, 14 years or is it, are we getting close now to a record high? I think it's a record high already, uh, Andrew. It, that, this, I'm talking petrol, not diesel. Yeah. I mean, di- yeah. diesel's probably al- already over that. And this is really, really hurting. People are crying out. They're giving up driving, going into any recreational visits, visiting their family, going out, enjoying themselves. Now, that's thrown out now. They're not doing that sort of thing. So the impact on the economy uh, is going to be phenomenal. What do you make of the, the business sector saying that Russian oil will be phased out by the end of the year? If we do that, is that going to put even more pressure on costs? Well, the only reason why we're getting more pressure on costs is because of the speculators are actually gambling with this uncertainty. Uh, we, only, we don't take uh, much oil from, uh, from Russia, something like 3 to 5%. Yeah. Most of our oil come, comes from the Middle East. Yeah. And I think we're okay. And one of the things, first things he could do, and with Rishi, is to pick up the phone and talk to OPEC countries and say, can you be rest- uh, a bit more restrained with, with your pricing of oil and start recognising that your biggest customers are going to be hurting it. And in the long term, it could actually do damage to the, the Middle East. We've also got some North Sea oil fields which have become been somewhat neglected. Could we not um, revive some of those too? I mean, it would take a time to get the petrol and the oil pumping into uh, the system, but not a bad short to medium term ambition. Well, I think this is important. All those sorts of things. I mean, there are six wells, I understand that. Uh, the number 11 have given permission to actually open up again. And it's the same with fracking. The short-sightedness by this government to make us into such a situation whereby we're reliant on uh, third parties to supply our energy is unbelievable. And the net effect, of course, is hitting everyone in the pocket. And what about the rush for net zero and all that? Do you think now, uh, Mr Cox, that's got to be abandoned, at least in the short term, because uh, the green taxes are are really hurting people, petrol costs really hurting people. So perhaps we should delay the dash to net zero by a few years or even by a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, well, I personally would abandon it completely. Yes. Uh, the, envi- the, the environmentalists are actually get, rubbing their hands in their horse manure glee uh, of really enjoying the thought that the fact is that drivers are going to be really hurt badly. And this is ridiculous that we, we're, we're looking at net zero when actually if we allow technology to evolve uh, naturally, our environment will clean up completely without getting draconian bans like the 2030 diesel petrol yeah. uh, ban and, and the same with the net zero uh, policy. And I support everything that the net zero watch team are doing. And just finally, um, you, you lobby government, you lobby ministers. How receptive do you think the Treasury is to not just cutting duty on fuel uh, later this month, but cutting it substantially? I, I, I don't know about substantially, but I think there'll be uh, mad to ignore the calls. Now, Robert Halfen MP is actually putting together a letter, which with my help, to write yeah. to the Chancellor and getting MP signatures. And there will be a lot of people, a lot of MPs signing that to say, come on, it's important. Our constituents are hurting. It's about time you actually did something for them. And, and I repeat, 
the Treasury is watering in a shed load of VAT at the moment, Andrew, and they can do they can use some of that to actually uh, pass on to in a, a fuel duty cut. It'll only be re- respite, but it'll help a bit. Absolutely, and every bit helps. That's Howard Cox, who is the founder of Fair Fuel UK. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood here with the latest sports news. You were off to an award to do the other night. Did you win anything? I didn't win anything, no, unfortunately. Right. And uh, we we as a newspaper, we did win something, yes. Good. What did we win? Remind uh, me. Martin Samuel oh, won brilliant. Live Reporter of the yeah. of the Year. So uh, a feather in our cap for that. So, Very good. Yeah. Very good. Now, cricket, which you, you know I'm absolutely enthralled by, we've recovered, uh, not least because that bloke got a century, but I can't remember his name. <laughs> Indeed, all over it again. Uh, yeah, Johnny Bairstow. Johnny so, Bairstow. so there was all this talk about the England Red Ball reset. Yeah. Uh, after they gutted the uh, the uh, Ashes losing side, yeah. Yeah. Uh, brought in new players, new management. Uh, and bizarrely, it was a very familiar tale after the first few overs when England found themselves 40-odd uh, for four. Mm. So... Um, basically the same old same old mm. uh, but rather than collapse uh, completely this time as they did so often in the ashes there was a, a revival led by Johnny Bairstow uh, who was a hundred is a hundred and nine not out overnight uh, teamed up well with Stokes uh, folks and wokes mm. to um, to to get England out of the mire so they're going into the second day which is just about to start now um, but at least they didn't uh, capitulate the way we've seen so often in the past and they could get to 300 which is something they failed to do in a whole Ashes series so very, um, very good very so good yes, I might, I might fingers even, crossed I might even watch it but then I might not now the, in the European Cup Liverpool just about made it, even though they lost at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, first loss in a year at Anfield for uh, for mm. Liverpool. But obviously, it turned out that it you know it wasn't a damaging defeat because they went through two one on aggregate. Okay, um, but was, they would have against against Inter Milan. Inter Milan and puts them now into the quarterfinals of the European Cup. Mm. But they would have expected a much easier night, having won two nil in, in the San Siro in the first leg. Right, uh, and then Inter scored uh, with about twenty to go, and then. Looked like well, we could be you know in for a cracking, exciting tie. Then had a player, Alexi Sanchez, sent off almost immediately after they'd scored, which really killed the mm. uh, killed the tie. So Liverpool, although they won't be delighted with the way they played necessarily, although they did miss a host of chances. Um, you know, the most important thing is they're in the hat for the next round. And Chelsea, of course, Abramovich on his way out. Um, Candy, he's one of the Candy brothers, huge property developers. Which one is it? Is it Nick Candy? Nick Candy, yeah. yeah. He's potentially a buyer. Well, keen on, keen on, on buying Chelsea, so yeah. a British person buying a football club. Oh, yeah. Well, that's I know. A turn up bit, for the book. bit unusual. Yeah. So he um, he will need others around him because right. he possibly doesn't have the, the wealth to do it on mm. his own. He's worth about 1.5 billion only. Is that all? Uh, yeah. Um, How does he manage on that? I know, I know. Must be a struggle with the rising yeah. oil prices and, yeah. and everything. But he, uh, so he's on 1.5, uh, he, he's, he's worth 1.5 billion. Abramovich obviously wants three billion, but mm. probably will have to settle for less than that. Maybe something in the region of two point five. Now, uh, Nick Candy's confident he can get that sort of money together as part of a consortium. He obviously has uh, he he would be potentially an attractive uh, purchaser because he's got experience of the the market and the area. Being a uh, being a local lad, he's a Chelsea fan since he was four. Uh, he knows the area because he obviously owns a lot of property in and around mm. West London. So uh, he could be a con- he, he's certainly a contender. And he does. 
does like football. He does know about football. Yeah, well, apparently Chelsea fans since he was age four being, right. uh, went a lot, um, to, uh, has been a lot to the ground. So um, apparently is a is a football fan. So that may appeal as well to um, to Abramovich. Although I imagine the bottom line will be how much dollar these uh, yeah. various parties are willing to part with in order to, to win Chelsea. But he's not alone. We know there's lots of other candidates who we've talked about before. Mm. The American-Swiss duo, uh, the LA Dodgers guy who's putting together a bid. So uh, w- the, the club have set a deadline of the... 15th of March or Bramovich has set a deadline on the 15th of March at which point he wants to uh, make a decision right so um, you know we're only what, about a week away now so uh, there's more and more people coming forward and it, it will be an interesting few days fascinating that is the Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood with the latest headline so is your dog suffering from poor mental health I asked the question because according to new research conducted by the Guide Dogs charity there are apparently nearly 9 million depressed and anxious pooches in the UK, which is effectively three quarters of every dog in the United Kingdom. Sounds a lot to me, but somebody who knows all about this is George Barrett. He is a Guild of Dogs trainer's master trainer, and he's also dog psychologist at Dalesman Dog Psychology. Mr Barrett, I've never heard of a depressed dog, but you will know all about it. Do you think really that we've got 9 million of them? Absolutely. Do you really think so? Undeniably, yeah, yeah, yeah. The main problems are are that today dogs are kept where they're not naturally, they're not kept naturally. So if you get a dog that's bred for one thing and then so this genetics want it to, to work and be energetic and hunt and things like that and then, you know, a family just want to take it down the local park and it'd be happy to be with them and not in the bushes and chasing squirrels and God knows what then obviously that family then is preventing that dog's genetics from being used. So therefore it can get frustrated and then I get phone calls about, you know, behavioural problems and one thing and another, but in actual fact, they're not really behavioural problems. They're just instinctive problems that uh, are not being fulfilled. Yeah, and so and some of the signs then of a dog that's got poor mental health, Mr Barrett, so maybe a loss of appetite, they may be destructive... Barking a lot? Are those would they be signs that you would recognise? Yeah, I, I, I think what you would try well, even even being um, aggressive. You know, you get a lot of dogs that are aggressive to other dogs. They're aggressive, chasing things and things like that. They're just natural behaviour uh, behaviours that um, are being suppressed. So, for instance, if you don't socialise your dog from between say eight weeks and sixteen, eighteen weeks old and they don't learn what you call bite inhibition. That's, that's the ability to play, play fight. So the play fight and the bite softly, and that then keeps the game going. So another dog will want to play with right. it, and they learn doggy etiquette. So they wouldn't just run up to a dog and jump all over it, a strange dog. They'd approach nice and calmly, you know, just as a person would go up to another person and, and they might say hello, shake their hands or whatever, but they wouldn't run up to them and just give them a hug if they didn't know. I get you. Do you see I what do, I mean? I do. So dogs have to learn doggy etiquette, and a lot of the dogs today, they're not kept naturally. Mm. So they're, kept, they're taken from the siblings, they're kept on their own largely. A lot of them, they, they aren't even let off the lead properly. Mm. So, you know, this it all manifests, it manifests itself in these behavioural problems. So when they come to see you, the owner comes to you with said dog that's got depression or um, mental illness or is showing signs of anxiety, what do you do, Mr Barrett, to help the dog out? Well, first of all, you've got to 
make sure that they've, they've got the right dog for for their environment right. for a start off and their 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 lifestyle are they energetic enough for a dog that's energetic mm. do you know what i mean so there's that i do and then obviously they've got to create teacher pupil behavior so the dog's a pupil and you're the teacher so to be able to mm. teach anything you've got to learn you've got to understand how it learns and then you can teach it then the teacher pupil relationship gives you status so once your dog's learnt the commands, then obviously you've got status enough to give it a command, not a request. So if, you, if you've no status, then you can't give a command. It's just a request and your dog will please itself. Its instincts mm. will take over. Right. So a dog is much happier if it's being actually instructed and guided on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. As, you know, if you liken it to people going to a job that they don't understand... Uh, and if they go there and the lads mm. are left to their own devices to make their own decisions and the, the bad decisions, that's giving them stress. Whereas if there was somebody there that were in authority yeah. uh, that could guide them and explain to them what they have to do, then their stress levels would be lower. Right. And what about things like interactive toys that you can buy now and puzzle games? Uh, do, uh, do they help, do you think? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're fine, but they're no substitute for what the dog is bred for. Mm. You know, I see a lot of, for instance, Spaniels, uh, Labradors, especially Border Collies, for instance, that are so intelligent, but they're obsessive. Yeah. So if a Border Collie, you know, is not in the right home, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, the, my, one of my favourite dogs, but, you know, if, the, if they're a hard-wired working breed um, type, then, you know, a lot of people struggle with them. Yeah, and of course, if they're only taking for a half an hour walk in the morning, half an hour walk in the afternoon, that, that's not going to do the trick, is it? Oh, I've got no chance. That, no, no, no. Not only that, it's not, it's not the same. I get a lot of people, I get border collies, and they go running with them, or, or spaniels, or whatever. Mm. But physical exercise is not the same as mental exercise. And also, when the dogs come back home, they need downtime. So a working dog has a hard day's work, but it has downtime when it's quiet. Whereas our dogs, they're coming to the house and there's the washing machine going, there's a the television on, there's a the telephone yeah, yeah, yeah. going, all the kids are on the you know iPads and God knows what, kicking a football around and acting daft. And the dogs, you know, they, they get stressed up. They, don't, oh, they can't relax. How interesting. That's absolutely fascinating, actually. What sort of dog do you have, Mr Barrett? Well, we've we've got various. We've we've uh, at the moment we've just got one Rottweiler, but we've we've lost another two Rottweilers, and we've lost uh, a Border Collie and a little um, Lapso Cross just lately. But um, you know, the, <laughs> we've got a, a a farm and we've got a you know plenty of land, and obviously we've got half an idea what we're doing with the dogs. I think you probably have. And uh, so, you know, we, we tend to not have a lot of problems at all. No, quite. But it's surprising how many people get actually depressed themselves, for instance, with with the work or the, the you know, sometimes relationship problems or, or whatever, or the kids are stressed and it causes stress in the house. I go to see loads of dogs that are actually badly behaved and when i go into the house it, it can be i'm not saying all the time but it can it can be that there's actually a domestic going on in the house which is creating tension mm. which then the dog gets involved with and the, and they're reacting all sorts of ways absolutely fascinating who'd have thought it um really interesting that's george barrett he's a dog psychologist and he's at dalesman dog psychology so if you're worried about your pooch give mr barrett george barrett a call because he can sort you out 
That's all we've got time for today. Every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs>